0: I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer
0: over time. Divine Madness Running Club boasted some spectacular results in ultra marathons around the turn of the century, and became known for their excellent support teams and low-impact style of running. But the Boulder, Colorado-based group was also notorious for their strange ways, whereby members were expected to follow the directions of their teacher in all aspects of their lives. That teacher, a man who calls himself Yo, claimed that he could kill his own sperm with his mind. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. This is the final episode of Season 5 of this podcast, and there will be a little treat from Let's Talk About Sects composer Joe Gould at the end of the episode, so do stick around after the credits for this one. Before we get into the episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of sexual assault. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Mark Allen Tyser was born in June 1948. The New York Times reported that his father ran a floor covering business and that Mark was a sprinter while attending junior high school in Philadelphia. The earliest press mentions I could find about him were in 1968 and 69 issues of The Hatchet, George Washington University's student newspaper, which were submitted as part of a US Congress House Committee report on internal security. At that point, Mark seemed to be an active member and spokesperson for Students for a Democratic Society, and is described in the student newspaper as a radical leader. One story reports on his arrest at a rally in November 1968, for disorderly conduct, and shouting and obscenity at police officers. According to the New York Times, Mark was studying philosophy and literature at GWU, but left after two and a half years. Daniel Glick reported for Women Outside Journal that he spent some time as a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman. After a period of travel and reflection, he set up a holistic healing clinic in Berkeley, California, before heading to Boulder, Colorado in 1977. At this point in time, he was in a long-term relationship and had two children with his de facto wife. It was in Boulder that Marx started up a collectivist living commune, to which he also brought elements of Zen Buddhism, yoga, Sufism, and some teachings from Gurdjieff, according to a piece by Bruce Schoenfeld for Sports Illustrated. George Gurdjieff was a Russian-born philosopher and mystic who built on some of the ideas of notorious esotericist Helena Blavatsky when he brought his own teachings back to Moscow from his travels in 1912. Gurdjieff taught a method of achieving higher consciousness that he called the work or the system, and Mark Tyser followed this simple naming structure in his early days, calling his collective the community. Other properties would be called the retreat and the land, and Mark later launched an educational organisation called the school. Some early followers referred to their undertakings at the community as The Work. When Alexander Cassidy met Mark Tyser in early 1978, Mark was known as T.H. This may have been related to Healing, or it may have been a nickname related to Ten High, a bourbon brand. Some would later joke that it stood for The Homewrecker. Alexander at the time was known as Scott, and then when he moved from Tallahassee to Boulder to live with the community, He changed his name to Bajurin. He wrote up a lot of his experiences on a detailed blog that's really worth a read, and I'll link it in the show notes. I'll just be using his current name, Alexander, to avoid confusion. At the time that Alexander became involved with TH, his teachings were under the banner of harmonising. Alexander described this as a holistic healing system, and credits it with saving his life even though he recognises that he spent over a decade in what he says developed over time into a cult. A few aspects of life in the community are covered by Alexander Cassidy on his blog. One is diet, which consisted of grain and vegetable-based one-bowl meals to be eaten sitting down on the floor with chopsticks. Quote, Cooking was spelled out in minute detail. How to cut each veggie, what order things went in the pot the exact size cubes to cut the cheese. Proportions of each ingredient were precise, as was the exact quantity each person was allowed to eat, determined via muscle testing. For her book Born Again Bodies, R. Marie Griffith spoke with a former devotee called Julie, who said that members were all very, very thin. Julie said that the restricted diet was a part of spiritual evolution. The more spiritually evolved you became the less you'd need to eat or sleep. She also said that she and many of Mark Tyser's followers were Jewish, as was Mark Tyser himself. What Mark called muscle testing involved pulling on a devotee's arm while they held it out, in a technique that Bruce Schoenfeld relates to the alternative medicine practice of applied kinesiology. The journalist interviewed a former follower who told him that the method didn't just determine your diet. Quote, he'd pull your arm and tell you who you should sleep with or whether you should give up being friends with so-and-so. Somehow Mark's approach to consumption still allowed for taking drugs, including psilocybin, and copious amounts of alcohol, which Alexander writes that Mark, then known as TH, glorified. According to Alexander, he once said, Everything is better with alcohol. Everything. At the community, members took part in something known as toasting circles, the person in the hot seat would toast with bourbon and everyone else would toast back with beer. Then the person in the hot seat would be subjected to criticisms that Alexander describes as brutal, designed to crush resistance. Members were encouraged to keep tabs on one another, with one former devotee telling reporter Daniel Glick, we'd earn brownie points by ratting on each other. Also in the community, monogamy was a no-no and sexual promiscuity was encouraged with Alexander sharing that TH dictated who should have sexual relations and when. TH theorised that students should be trying to get rid of their attachments and would come to encourage limited contact with family and other outsiders, as well as limiting reading materials and access to media. Non-monogamous sexual relationships were expected to be heterosexual only, with a former member telling Clay Evans for the Daily Camera that homosexuals were designated as not on the path. TH also got Alexander onto running, which Alexander refers to as the third part of TH's addiction trifecta, with alcohol and sex being the other two parts. While Alexander wasn't destined for ultramarathons in his running, this aspect of TH's teachings was to become a huge part of some of his devotees' lives. One day Alexander was caught cheating on his diet and eating a bar of Toblerone. TH put him on an even more restrictive diet of brown rice cooked into a mush, with an allowance for some form of protein to be added once a day. Quote, "That was my diet for weeks. I became underweight. My ribs stuck out, my cheeks were hollow. I felt like I had the flu, body aches all over, zero energy, just wanted to stay in bed." Eventually TH let him off the punishment diet but the once-star student was now seen as on the path to failure. TH first came up with a plan for Alexander that would have seen him hitchhiking around the country and taking few belongings with him. But after Alexander had a fall in a gully that required some recovery time, the plan changed and he was instead sent off to live in seclusion for a year, in a mountain cabin with no running water or insulation. He was allowed only women visitors every second weekend so that he could keep up with the sexual part of his regimen. Alexander writes that he loved this period of his life, which sounds lucky. For many, I imagine it wouldn't have been a pleasant experience. Towards the end of Alexander's time harmonising, the toasting circles became more regular. Quote, We would gather every evening for mandatory drinking combined with being lectured, berated, humiliated, and otherwise tortured well into the wee hours, sometimes leaving no time at all before the workday began, with lots of hard physical labour plus mandatory running. Alexander felt that he was being pushed to his limit, and the idea was to turn him into a complete devotee. Instead, this was the final straw, and tipped him into leaving the organisation in 1991. At some point around this period, Mark or TH came to be known by a new name, which was Yo Tizer. Yo was short for Yosemian, which came after a stint as Yusuf Amin. Bruce Schoenfeld reported that Yosemian was derived from the phrase, you are the same as me. Apparently, Yo watched a six-day race at the University of Colorado in 1991, and fully embraced the physically punishing sport of ultramarathon running as a path to spiritual transformation. It was somewhere around this time that Divine Madness was born. Yo's followers were already following strict diets and pushing their bodies in all kinds of ways prior to this, including limiting sleep, which like eating, was on the floor, to around four or five hours per night. So it seems like a not entirely unsurprising development. It will come as no surprise either to regular listeners of this podcast that Yo claimed to only need 20 hours of sleep per week. A former member told journalist Michael Finkel that Yo liked to claim that, as long as you got your liver sleep between 3 and 5 am, you were okay. Yo told Yera Longman for the New York Times about the group's training runs, quote, Sometimes we're on a 40 mile run, and at mile 39, I'll say we're going to run another 20. Life throws a lot of things at you. This allows them to relax with the changes in life. By 1996, Divine Madness and its members were regularly placing on the leaderboards of the Leadville Trail 100 ultramarathon race. The Leadville Trail 100 run is an annual race in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. 100 miles or 160 kilometres, with 4,800 metres of climbing and descent. It has a time limit of 30 hours for runners to complete it, and the male record is 15 hours and 43 minutes, while the female record is 18 hours and 6 minutes. Divine Madness's star runner Steve Peterson won the race four years running from 1996 to 1999, and then again in 2001, with a time just under 17 hours and 41 minutes. Interestingly, in the 2000 race, when it was clear that Steve wouldn't be able to beat Chad Rickliffs, a runner who was critical of Divine Madness and its methods, Bruce Schoenfeld reported that Yo told Steve to drop out of the race. Another Divine Madness devotee, Janet Runyon, won the 2001 women's race of the Leadville Trail 100 run in just under 21 hours and 48 minutes. She was Divine Madness's star female runner and had previously won the women's race of the 100km national championship in 1996. When Yo Tizer started giving more public workshops off the back of the race wins, and Divine Madness started getting media coverage for their successes, some former members started to think that aspiring athletes potentially being recruited into the club might need some further information about what they were getting themselves into. Also in 1996, Yo Tizer was being sued in a civil lawsuit by three former followers, Georgiana Scott, John Hunt, and Melissa Huntress. They claimed they experienced physical, emotional, and sexual manipulation by Yo, who isolated them from friends and family, banned monogamy, demanded sexual relationships with female devotees, and threatened those who expressed a desire to leave with physical illness and emotional destruction. According to the lawsuit, Kaiser forbade reading of outside literature, forbade travel outside of Boulder, forbade watching television, and required daily reading and study of the notes of his lectures. The plaintiffs described the impact of Yeo's methods as a systematic destruction of the human will. The case was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum in 1998. Before the settlement, a complaint alleging sexual assault by Yotizer was also filed with the Boulder Police Department by former follower Michelle Herson. Divine Madness's star runner Steve Peterson, who worked as a house cleaner when he wasn't training, defended the levels of control that his teacher exerted over followers to the New York Times. He told Yara Longman, for an article published in July 1997, quote, Most Americans are not comfortable with the idea of having a teacher. They are so individualistic. They ask, Why don't you stand on your own two feet? It's the same thing as having a coach of a football team. He is teaching you, and if he tells you to do something, you do it. You give up some measure of control for a greater benefit. I feel the benefit of a different lifestyle. Jotizer himself told the Times, in what was either a clear misunderstanding or deliberate misinterpretation of cultic dynamics, that, quote, A cult is where everyone shaves their head and you have to give all your money over. This is something else, where people who are sincerely trying to improve themselves have a teacher who is more or less evolved, and is trying to help them lead a more balanced, harmonious life. If these runners do as well in other parts of their lives, they can be exemplary people. Bruce Schoenfeld reported that after the New York Times coverage, members found themselves further isolated from the outside world. Former Divine Madness devotee Celia Bertoia told the reporter, There was an entire decade where I didn't know anything that was going on. When I got out into the world, people would talk about historical events like the Oklahoma bombing or the O.J. Simpson thing. I had never heard of any of them. When Bruce Schoenfeld wrote his article in August 2003, he found that Divine Madness had around 35 members. In earlier days, at its peak, Yo's following comprised up to 100. Schoenfeld wrote that members worked subsistence jobs, lived together in shared housing in various locations, and handed over a portion of their earnings to the group. Two former members told the journalist that previously, when practitioners didn't finish their Sunday run of up to 50 miles, they might not be allowed to eat. By the way, Yo himself was allowed to eat peanut butter and banana sandwiches, and reportedly demanded that they be prepared for him in a careful fashion so that there were no gaps between the pieces of banana. Thursdays were for drunken parties that lasted all night, with lots of dancing and sex. Celia Bertoia told Schoenfeld that Yo had a toilet built in the middle of his bedroom. One of his so-called yo-ladies would wake him each morning in a ritual that would often involve him instigating sexual intercourse. Daniel Glick wrote that, Yo-ladies were said to be on call in shifts. Tizer kept a buzzer in his sparsely furnished room, ringing it whenever he needed anything. He spent most of the day watching TV, sometimes tapes of his own talks, and former yo ladies told Glick that they would have to prepare five to six shots of Jack Daniels and a supply of cold beers for him every night. Quote, Everything from the wrinkle-free sheets on his bed to the exact position of his water glasses was scrutinized by Tizer. Celia Batoya said that he would get drunk while members were expected to perform self-evaluations before bed each night. Yo called irregular community meetings, which Alexander Cassidy wrote on his blog that he had been thankful to miss if he had a work shift. The meetings started late at night and would often go until four in the morning, with a lot of speaking from Yo about whatever subject was on his mind. A female devotee would then be honoured to be selected by him to join him in bed afterwards. Women would usually be asked if they wanted to be in the stew, which meant in the mix of women volunteers for Yo to choose from. But some did feel a bit of pressure to say yes. On one occasion, a former devotee told Clay Evans she was put in the hot seat for refusing to have sex with Yo. The women voted that instead of putting up the usual round of volunteers, it should be her to sleep with Yo that night. She did so, and when she told him how awful she was finding it, she says Yo told her, It's just like life, deal with it. Another woman who wasn't a Yo lady, but was still expected to sleep with him on occasion, told Michael Finkel, One time, in the morning, I said I didn't feel like it, and he said, Oh, you'll get over it, just so he could get his rocks off. The New York Times reported that Yo's recipe for personal growth and spiritual transformation was Honesty, foregoing self-gratification for the greater needs of a partner or group, and wedding oneself with nature. One assumes his yo-ladies were the ones foregoing self-gratification for the greater needs of yo himself. A Divine Madness devotee paid cash for the organization's 160-acre New Mexico property known as The Retreat. It's incredibly remote, and any members sent there can't work regular jobs so are supported financially by those who can elsewhere. Daniel Glick reported that a number of Yo's followers under his direction worked there for years to renovate the lodge and build other structures. In return, they did not receive any financial compensation or ownership stake. Some might enjoy the peace and quiet and time to focus on running and enlightenment, but others might be sent there against their wishes and told that it's what they needed. Daniel Glick reported that Yo retained sole possession of the property in 1996, the year after he and his wife separated. In 1997, Newsweek journalist Andrew Murr spoke to a dozen former followers of Yo and formed a picture of, quote, "...a manipulative, alcoholic, sex-addicted despot who controls nearly every aspect of his followers' lives in a sort of spiritual slavery." Celia Bertoya had handed over a $100,000 inheritance to Yo, and was then pressured to hand over another $40,000. She said that Yo told her that if she was serious about transformation, she needed to give away all of her money to the group. Other stories include children under the age of 10 being required to participate in long runs before dawn, being subjected to physical punishment, a child being left outdoors in the freezing cold as a punishment, and women being coerced into abortions after pregnancies by Yo, even though Yo liked to claim that he could kill his own sperm with his mind. And that wasn't all he reckoned he could do with his mind. He told the New York Times that he once focused his thoughts on an Orlando Magic player while watching the NBA playoffs on television. I played with his neurovascular points, Yo told the journalist. He couldn't make his free throws. Donna Roberts had begun following the man then known as TH when she and her husband couldn't conceive, and she visited a holistic healer who was one of his students. She then went along to a seminar and ended up divorcing her husband and moving to Boulder to join the group. After TH advised her that by sleeping with more partners, she'd overcome a risk of cervical or ovarian cancer that her doctor had warned her about, she received clear pap smear results. Soon she was encouraged to have sex with T.H. himself, but not to tell his wife about it. Some years later, she became pregnant by Yo, in spite of his supposed powers over his own sperm. Donna told journalist Daniel Glick that she had wanted to keep the baby, knowing the trouble she'd had conceiving before, and that Yo consulted the I Ching, an ancient Chinese divination text, but the answer was no. More than this, quote, "'He told me I wouldn't be a decent mother,' I'd be kicked out of the community and on welfare. For two hours, he systematically destroyed me. She agreed to the abortion. Various former members have said that they were able to leave the group when they wanted to, with no issue. But when former member Kim Mooney told Yo that she wanted to leave, after being treated for cervical cancer, she told Andrew Ma that Yo said that she would contract something much worse and less curable within three years if she strayed from the path. And a reminder that the 1996 lawsuit also included allegations that Yo threatened physical illness and emotional destruction would come to those who left. Another former member told Andrew Murr of an occasion when she was woken at 2:30 a.m. and told that Yo wanted sex with her. Knowing she had to run 42 miles at dawn, she wasn't keen, but felt that she couldn't refuse and cried as the drunken Yo attempted what I think we can probably call an alleged rape before passing out when he couldn't manage it. She ran her 42 miles after a couple more hours sleep because she says that she wouldn't have been permitted to eat that day if she didn't. Michael Finkel wrote an article for Women's Sport and Fitness Magazine's November-December 1999 issue that gives a bit of insight into the pull of an ultra-running cult. He sought out divine madness after witnessing the performances of some of their star runners and wondering what the group was tapping into that he might be able to learn from. Quote, "'Ultra runners are on a first-name basis with misery. For many of us, the longer we run, the more sleep-deprived we are, the closer we come to absolute exhaustion, the more satisfied we feel. I have been in the throes of such an obsession.'" and it's not difficult to imagine how soothing it would be to find someone who could guarantee my body endless challenges, who was willing to manage and schedule and plan my pain. One former member told the writer, When I was in Divine Madness, I was sure it was the coolest running club in the world. It took me years to realise that the price of admission was my mind and my spirit and my independence. Finkel did feel that he gained something from the long runs he took with Divine Madness members but following an invitation to a party with them until dawn, in spite of wanting to, he couldn't accept Janet Runyon's invitation on another run at 9am. It was less than four hours away after a night of no sleep and lots of liquor. Mark Heinemann joined the group in the mid-1980s, back when the focus was still harmonising. He went to a workshop held by the man then known as TH in Seattle and was hooked with the techniques from there eventually moving to Boulder in 1991. He'd studied music at Queen's College, played multiple instruments, and had written a musical. His mother, Gisella Heineman, told Clay Evans for the Daily Camera that as part of his joining Divine Madness, he was told not to write music or have anything to do with music for five years. She also said that when her son described the attributes that attracted him to Yo Tizer, she told him, Mark, you're describing a psychopath. In 1996, Mark attempted his first Leadville 100 race. He ended up with a bout of hypothermia and suspected pneumonia, and reportedly a collapsed right lung. Former Divine Madness devotee Celia Bertoya told Clay Evans that at first he was admonished for being dramatic. Celia herself had suffered from a broken leg after she says Yo instructed her to keep running on what turned out to be a stressed fracture. Yo apparently said her brittle bones were the cause, and they were a metaphor for her issues. Because there is so much pain in ultra-running, there's always going to be some form of running through the pain as part of the approach, but obviously things should change when there's a need of medical attention. The former member who'd initially brought Mark into the fold told Clay Evans that they never go to doctors, as practitioners relied on Yo's muscle testing for any diagnosis. When that member had whiplash, he says he was told to sleep with more people. He says that Yo would say, If you have cancer, it's better you don't know, because they would work on it another way. Former practitioner Doug McLean told reporter Daniel Glick that a doctor diagnosed him with hypothyroidism after he left, and said that the extreme stress he was placing his body under was causing it to burn itself up. He says Yo told him his medical issues were either in his imagination or caused by his own shortcomings. Once someone has had a collapsed lung, there's a much greater risk that it can happen to them again. Mark's mother, Gisela, was also concerned about his devotion to this intense sport because of a family history of heart and cholesterol problems. She asked for Mark to get a medical checkup, but was told by another Divine Madness member that there was nothing wrong with him, so there would be no checkup. Mark became a specialist in 48 hour races, which is what he participated in on December 30, 2003. The Across the Year's Fixed Time race was around a set loop, and participants would run the circuit continually over 24, 48, and 72 hour periods, with the winner being the competitor who covered the greatest distance in the set time. That race, Mark ran 207 miles, or 333 kilometres, to place third. A day later, he was found dead in his hotel room. The subsequent coroner's report indicated that Mark Heinemann died of bilateral lobar pneumonia, with his lungs filled with pus, blood, bacteria and vomit. An email sent around the community and signed off by his extended family a few days after Mark's death and before the coroner's report came out said that he died peacefully and wondered if it might have been related to non-prescription pain relievers which he had taken for this race which was unusual for him it makes me wonder what he needed the pain medication for the group also sent a certified letter to the daily camera when clay evans was researching his article in which divine madness spokesperson susan hart wrote that mark had been experiencing extreme diarrhea the night before the race as well while the Divine Madness community was heartbroken at the loss of their friend, Mark's parents were concerned that their attitudes to healthcare and embracing discomfort are what stopped their son's life from being saved. According to medical professionals, his symptoms should have been quite obvious. He had also just completed 48 hours straight of running, which will of course strain the healthiest of bodies. But with appropriate treatment, Mark Heineman would most likely have lived. After Daniel Glick tried repeatedly to get an interview or response from Yeo or any members of his community for his 1999 article for Women Outside Journal, the reporter was sent a statement from Yo that read, After all the lies and distortions of fact and context reported about me and us by the media, based on what actually has occurred and goes on in here, and in the light of the truth, I am the only one who should be crying foul, not my former students. Divine Madness spokesperson Susan Hart sent a written response to Leslie Linthicum's questions for her Albuquerque Journal article in May 2006, which said that the negative media coverage related to a specific period when Yo was doing specific things to teach his students. She also wrote that their main purpose in dedicating themselves to spiritual growth had been overshadowed by, quote, the spurious claims of cult status foisted on the media by a dozen or so malcontented former students, out of the hundreds who have been students here over the years and thousands who have been helped by us and former members sharing our knowledge and methods. In answer to the various allegations made by former members that the journalist put to the organization, Hart wrote, the simplest, most direct and honest statement we can make is that they are either outright lies or constitute a gross distortion, exaggeration or mischaracterisation of fact and context. I want to say here that it seems very clear to me that this is an organisation that heard about the harms experienced by former members and never thought, should we perhaps reflect on what went wrong there? Is there something that we need to examine about why a number of people who came out of our group felt controlled? and that they needed to seek help and warn others? It's clear that they're framing any naysayers as not worth listening to, as is the case with pretty much every cultic group I've ever looked into. That's what their statements to the media suggest in any case. And in addition, the idea that because hundreds of former students haven't spoken out in the same way as those who felt a need to share their concerns, that doesn't mean it's because they are all happy with what happened to them. Also, if I wasn't harmed by a certain situation that I later found out harmed others, my experience does not negate that harm. Certainly, journalists did find former members who had nothing bad to say, and they reported as much. Daniel Glick spoke with more than a dozen former followers of Yotizer for his article, 42 Miles to Enlightenment, and some had only positive things to say about their time with the guru. But, the reporter wrote... Of the former members interviewed, it's noteworthy that only men spoke in Tizer's favour. Glick also found many with less than glowing things to say, and in all of the articles I've read about this group, even those who had become disillusioned didn't hesitate to share the positive aspects of their time there, of which there were many. As is often the case, there can be plenty of good things keeping kind and wonderful people invested in a group that may be using coercive methods over them. I stumbled on a 2011 blog post about managing the steep uphills of a course called the Ridge Run that mentioned divine madness, and in the comments there were a few who had spent time with the community. One said, so much went untold and hidden and there has been so little validation and sharing of experience of getting out and trying to recover from being there. I was in the group from 1984 to 1990. It's so weird to see the few people I can find, now that we are all much older. And I wonder how other people have put it behind them successfully. That's not my real name in my email. I still have paranoia about being found by Yo. Stupid I know, but something I still have. It was the best and worst six years of my life. Another said, I was a member of Harmonising slash the community for two years, 1979 to 1981. As I am now a physician, I am hesitant to have it become common knowledge that I was once a member of a group that was basically a cult so I would appreciate having my name and email kept confidential. This suggests to me that there may be a number of those hundreds of former students who feel that it's too difficult to go on the record about their experiences. As ever, removing the stigma from those who have found themselves enmeshed in cults is so important. Business filings with the Colorado Secretary of State show articles of incorporation for the school as a nonprofit in 1983. Trading names over the years including Great Wisdom Workshop, Great Wisdom Publishing, and Divine Madness Ultra Club. A suspension of the Colorado nonprofit in 1999, with a reinstatement in 2000 as the school again, and a disillusion in 2003. Leslie Linthicum wrote that Divine Madness had incorporated a non-profit corporation called The Corporation for the Dissemination of Teachings of Value, also referred to as CDTV. At the time of the article in 2006, they were filing federal tax returns showing an income between $80,000 and $100,000 annually, with half from contributions and half from their properties. They had a farm in New Mexico that they called The Gathering of Friends, which produced vegetables and medicinal and culinary herbs. Trademark searches under the Corporation for the Dissemination of Teachings of Value include two now-canceled trademarks for harmonizing, originally filed in 2010, one abandoned trademark for the Organ Energy Systems, and one registered and renewed trademark as of 2021 for OES, described as education services, namely providing classes, seminars and workshops in the field of holistic healing, therapy and personal development, and standing for organ energy systems. I looked up more recent filings from CDTV, and they showed revenues in 2020 of $240,042, and in 2019 for $476,232 which included an interesting grant amount of $312,957 from an organisation called Homestar. Homestar is listed as a children's daycare centre in Lafayette, Colorado. Its website says that it was originally founded in 1985 and transferred to a new owner in April 2020, so not long after this grant to CDTV. In terms of what the status of Tizer and Divine Madness is now, it's tricky to say. The other place I found CDTV mentioned was on ic.org, the website of the Foundation for Intentional Community. Under an intentional community listing for Highland in Lafayette, Colorado, the mission statement includes, quote, Highland is an ongoing project of the nonprofit Corporation for the Dissemination of Teachings of Value, CDTV. CDTV draws on an extraordinary body of teachings developed and compiled over the last 40 years. This teaching, a clarification of the practical wisdom found in the world's great spiritual and cultural traditions, updated for this modern age, addresses every relevant dimension of how to achieve one's highest potentials. The listing says it is a community of 12 adults, 71 to 80% women, and is looking for interns for a minimum of 36 months. Monthly fees are listed as $1,200. It also says that the community does have an identified leader, as well as a leadership core group. Even by the time of Bruce Schoenfeld's piece for Sports Illustrated 20 years ago in 2003, former followers were reporting that with Yo living mainly at the New Mexico property, the current members had more freedom than they used to. He is hoping they're doing well, and that nobody else will suffer from any ill effects from their time in the organisation. Michelle Herson, the former devotee who made a sexual assault complaint to the Boulder Police Department back in 1997, said of Yo, He has a system where he tries to seduce any woman that comes across his path without concern for their boundaries and sensitivities. Many women felt confused and violated by these interactions. She also said that there was little space for individuals in Yo's orbit to have a self, and that... He has emotional and psychological control over everyone around him. He is a manipulative, diabolical person. What are the chances of so many who knew the man intimately coming to these kinds of conclusions about a truly enlightened teacher who was in fact helping everyone who came to him? As Donna Roberts said to Daniel Glick, There is no true spiritual teaching that condones such violation of personal boundaries. Nobody needs to tear you down so much to teach you something. Yo Tizer will be 75 in June. Hopefully he has indeed mellowed with age. This episode brings Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sex to a close. Please do stick around after the credits to hear from LTAS composer Joe Gould about how he comes up with the music for the show, and a sneak preview of one of the tracks from his upcoming soundtrack album, which you might recall we mentioned at the end of Season 4, but is very close to being released now. I'll be taking a few months off to plan the next season and to work on some ideas around advocacy as well. It's thanks to my wonderful Patreon supporters and all of my listeners that I'm able to take the time it needs to keep this project sustainable, and so I really want to say an extra big thanks to you all as I close out the season. Having gone from season four into writing and releasing a book, I then went straight into season five and a bunch of talks without really taking a break, and I must admit that I've been teetering right on the brink of burnout. If you've been in email contact with me about doing an episode and I haven't been in touch in a while, please, please drop me a line again in July, because once I've gathered myself again, I'll be attempting to get back on top of my inbox, which has gotten a little overwhelming lately. I really appreciate your patience and understanding. As a totally independent project, this show is my passion, but it does sometimes get the best of me. And those who've read my book will know I've had a few things going on in my personal life as well that have taken a bit of an emotional toll. As always, you can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, which is linked in the show notes. Something you can always do for free is give the podcast a rating on the podcast platform of your choice, or share it with a friend. I'd really appreciate that. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. It was edited and mixed by Matt Brazzle, and all of the original music was composed by the incredible Joe Gould. Let's hear from him now. Joe, so nice to be speaking with you. Thank
1: you for having me. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about sex, listeners. I think appreciate the music for the podcast in that it adds to the overall feeling of what is hopefully a quality production, but I think they may appreciate it on a more subconscious level. So I'm interested in sharing with them what goes into each episode on a musical level. So tell me about the process of writing music for Let's Talk About Sects. How do you approach each story to compose the cues?
1: So, yeah, I think what's a little different about LTAS, it's really good that I'm not the one on the mic. Luckily, I stay behind the mic and make the music. But when I'm writing music for the podcast, I think a lot of other podcasts rely on sort of library music or stings provided by a composer or maybe by Yeah, someone that you're getting to pre-compose music. Whereas the way we do it is I'll get a script. You'll send it to me when you finish the script and I'll read through it and I'll sort of get a sense of the overall flavor of the group that you're talking about each month. And that will somehow inform the way that I compose the music for that episode. So, you know, if a group is more into meditation, then I might, lean on drony meditative sounds, and certainly one of the groups I sort of recorded myself breathing in and sort of having all these layered chants behind everything. And yeah, if another one has a much more kind of religious bent, then I might use chord progressions that are sort of based in the, the era of church music that they're relying on. Often I'll look up the music that groups use themselves. For instance, when you did the Branch Davidians episode, I was excited, if that's the right word, to find that Koresh had had his own sort of failed music career and I could be inspired by his Madman Living in Waco song and sort of shoehorn some little references to that throughout the episode. I think it would be almost impossible to hear them now, but I feel like that sort of is part of the glue, the sort of X-factor that goes into making the music fit what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and now that you say that, that reminds me that sometimes I'll have a, a phrase in the script and then you'll do a sound cue and you'll tell me later that you somehow did like a little echo of, I don't know, Celine Dion or something that related to the script. I can rarely ever hear it, but like the the level of detail that goes into some of those ideas is just kind of, I find it impressive and surprising. <laughs>
1: I find it very satisfying to just work in little Easter eggs. There's one recently where I think you mentioned Rocky Mountain High or something like that. And so I managed to find a way of shoehorning the chord progression from that song in behind the bit of text immediately after that as part of the, the score. Which, again, no one will ever notice it. I barely even notice it myself if I listen to the episode. But I do get a kick out of just having a a few little Easter eggs and hopefully, yeah, they go to your sort of subconscious brain when you're listening to things like that.
0: So if any listeners have ever actually noticed any of these things, I think you can pat yourself on the back because that's pretty impressive if you have. So, Joe, tell me about this soundtrack album you've been working on for a couple of years now. I think some listeners may recall me mentioning this at the end of the last season before this one. It's, it's going to be finally out soon. What's it called and how have you shaped each track from the work you did on the podcast episodes to be a full track for the soundtrack?
1: In some ways it's this sort of process of coming full circle because when I write music for the podcast I often start with writing a full sort of piece of music with two or three different sections in it and variations. And then when it comes to making cues to actually insert into the podcast, which are usually sort of 10 to 20 seconds long, they'll just be fragments of a larger piece that I composed. And I realized that I had quite a number of episodes building up where I had this sort of larger piece of music sitting in front of the episode edit that I could actually put to some use at some point and that it might be nice to hear them all all those little fragments sort of put back together again. And for the recent season, I've been doing it slightly differently and I have been coming up with the fragments and using more iterations of similar ideas, but that's kind of coming the other way around thinking, Oh, maybe I could join these together again later. So this album is me either reverse engineering those little fragments or showing you revealing finally the original piece of music that I came up with for each episode. And Often I find that there's a use for a sort of light and a dark version of similar ideas throughout an episode. And I also track the way the main theme is used throughout an episode. So, for example, usually any time that you bring in the text of the episode back to why this group is considered a cult or how they exhibit cult-like thinking in this sort of wider society way of how we think about cults that I usually include a reference to the theme of like the main title of the episode. And so the main podcast theme sort of gets peppered throughout, but I always adjust it to suit whatever I've written for the rest of the episode. So if it's like one of the more meditation-based groups, then I've inserted bits of the podcast theme, but played on wind chimes or sort of tubular bells in the background. Or if it's like in the Living Word Fellowship episode, where it's more sort of modern Christian evangelical church music, then I've transposed the main theme into a more sort of major key Hillsong style chord progression. Am I allowed to say Hillsong?
0: <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> yeah, it's fine.
1: <laughs> style. It's, it's no particular reference apart from the, the style of evangelical music. And so the main theme kind of threads its way through all the, all the different pieces and all the different thematic ideas that I've come up with that are specific to each episode. So the album's called Nobody Joins a Cult, which is a phrase that I've heard throughout the podcast over all these episodes and sort of seems like a, a theme that you keep returning to. And I wanted to sort of instill that in the album as well of this, that all the tracks relate to a specific group and they all have their own flavour. And each of these groups is purporting to do something different and nobody's joining them thinking that they're joining a cult and... I think that sort of flows through into the, the way the music interacts as well with the, with the main theme coming back throughout each piece of music. And I think of all the tracks on the album, I think the main theme is an important part of all of them. It's sort of embedded, embedded in them. Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's quite hidden in the background. And I've taken the title of each track on the album from a phrase that's sort of associated with the group. So for the, Music from the Ideal Human Environment episode, there's Advancing the Frontiers of Science. And for the Living Word Fellowship episode, there's the Young Adult School of Prophets. And for the Nexium one, there's Where I Am is Caused by Me, which is something Keith Minary said in his trial, I think.
0: Yeah, I like that you picked up kind of elements from the script to to put as the titles of the tracks. I think they're quite descriptive and interesting. You've kind of given a bit of a sense of this already, but what can listeners expect from the overall kind of vibe of the album? How would you describe the music?
1: So I guess probably the jumping off point for anyone is the opening titles of the podcast. And I've included the full titles of the podcast on the album, which is actually that the opening and closing titles were originally written as one piece of music and I just split them apart for the purposes of making it short enough to make you happy with how short the titles were because <laughs> you thought they were too long. So
0: Harsh taskmaster.
1: master. It is true. So my original 90-second title sequence for the podcast <laughs> turned out to be not what people wanted to hear and cut it down to you know, 30 or 40 seconds each. That seems much more in keeping with a, a podcast about a serious subject. So they're back together again, as they should be. <laughs> and then throughout the rest of the album, I've kind of – also added extra layers as I sort of went back and found these these pieces that I'd written that were originally per episode a sort of th- two or three minute piece of music with multiple sections. I've sort of fleshed them out and added some extra layers. You'll hear a lot of the lot of the tunes in the podcast version. If you listen to what's going on behind you speaking, or in the stings between elements of the podcast, they're much more mallet percussion and synthesizer based sounds, and then. I've kept those sounds, but also added uh, live drums. Since I'm a drummer, I figured I should probably get some drums on this thing. And the overall result is that it sort of ended up sounding like a instrumental post rock album, or like a yeah, some kind of synth rock album. And it is more soundtracky than that, but I was surprised that just sort of putting a few of these things together resulted in a, a slightly different sound.
0: And you you mentioned that you're a drummer. I think listeners also might not know that you're an ARIA Award nominated musician along with your band, the Crooked Fiddle Band, for your last album, Another Subtle Atom Bomb, on which you play the drums and other percussive instruments. How does your soundtrack music fit in with your other projects? Tell us a bit about those.
1: So, yeah, the Crooked Fiddle Band is a long-running project with three friends of mine and we've been playing for a very long time and... We started out thinking we were a folk band, sort of all having been to folk festivals and getting into sort of Celtic folk music. And right as we met, we were discovering other types of folk music. So fiery Eastern European melodies and things. And our violinist, who's an amazing player, just played us these tunes with so much energy and the rest of us in the band just thought, well, Every time we've seen someone try and play drums or bass to songs like that, you know, melodies like that, it kind of ends up canceling out the energy of the, the amazing violin or, you know, lead melody. So we thought, what if we just play like we're in a hardcore punk band? (laughs) And we did. And it was fun. And then even better than being fun, it turned out that other people thought it was fun too. And now we're here. So we did a few albums of that, but along the way we kind sort of got, got sidetracked and got really into Scandinavian folk music as well. And then started incorporating those influences and we're based in Sydney. Sydney, particularly starting about 10 or 15 years ago, had a really healthy post-rock scene. You heard me mention the word, the term post-rock a couple of seconds ago as well. And we got a bit obsessed with those kind of bands that were in sort of playing gigs with those bands around Sydney and around Australia and incorporated those kind of things into the music as well. So that's probably the jumping off point for where I write the music for this podcast as well, is that sort of mix of post-rock and folky elements. There's a lot of the music in the podcast ends up with some element of traditional music thrown in there, often to, to sort of give the flavour of, of the particular group that's being talked about.
0: So I'll be dropping a link to the upcoming soundtrack album, Nobody Joins a Cult, in the show notes. But where can listeners head if they'd like to pre-order a copy so they can get it into their hot little hands as soon as it's available?
1: So you can pre-order the album now from Bandcamp, and my Bandcamp address is joegouldmusic.bandcamp.com. Fantastic.
0: And as I said, that will be linked in the show notes, so make sure you click through and pre-order a copy. We're going to play a track from the album right now, so you get a special sneak peek. So thanks so much, Joe Gould, for speaking with me and for all of your brilliant work on the podcast. I am incredibly fortunate to have your amazing original compositions for each episode. Tell us a bit about the track you've chosen to play today, and then we'll launch right into it.
1: So this track is called Start a Revolution, which is from the episode on Zendik Farm, who had a a bumper sticker that they were selling for a while that said, Stop Bitching, Start Stop a Revolution. Stop Bitching,
0: Start a Revolution, and Christina Aguilera once wore it on stage.
1: Oh, yes. Well, this is in honour of Christina Aguilera. Because they were a, a bit of a hippie group, they put on music festivals. I wanted to sort of evoke maybe a slightly earlier period of this sort of hippie ideal that they were they were selling as a product to their, to their members, basically, which was that, you yeah, know, rose-tinted Woodstock hippie kind of summer of love kind of thing. So I wanted to write something that was psychedelic, could handle going a bit dark so that we could deal with some of the, the dark themes in the episode. But also, you yeah, know, in the setup to the episode would have this classic music festival jam band kind of feeling to it. So when you hear the track, you'll hear a few elements that are the main theme of the podcast woven in there. Some of them are obvious. Some of them a little less so. One of the least obvious ones is the deep sounds at the start of the track is actually the main theme of the podcast played on guitar and then pitched down two octaves, which I think I just did an experiment at some point because I'd heard that Hans Zimmer did that in the score to Inception, which kind of created a whole movement of all these thinking persons action movies that have... The wah sound in them, which is Hans Zimmer slowing down.
0: That's the technical name for it.
1: That's Yeah, it's known as the wah. (laughs) So I wanted my own wah, and I thought maybe if I did that, I could use it in every episode as a really sort of dark version of the theme. And then I just used it in that one episode. (laughs) So that's at the start of the track, comes back a little bit in the middle in the end. There's also guitars playing the main theme. Towards the start and in the middle, with some slight variations to kind of give it that more psychedelic, Woodstocky kind of sound. And then the kind of main body of the track is this drony, guitar-based riff thing. And I wanted to include that as something to play everyone because when you hear the main theme and a lot of the music that I use in the podcast, there's often synthesizers. Uh, mallet percussion instruments sort of come back a lot but this distorted guitar sound is something that you may not remember unless you specifically think of that episode so yeah it sort of has this and i, I
0: always i want to say because you the way that you describe the tracks is like they they often have the theme in them which they do but like often you can't hear it and when listening to the because i've had a special preview and been able to listen to the whole album the tracks are very different from each other you're not getting any kind of really samey stuff in there so it's
1: yeah and it's intentionally yeah trying to Trying to push the theme into new territories every time I reuse it. It's sort of meant to make you subconsciously connect it with this idea of cults and and sects as a wider societal kind of thing.
0: Well pronounced, by the way. I
1: tried so hard. I think it's the best one. I'm so glad you recorded it.
0: (laughs) But I I, I interrupted you. I think you were talking about the the guitar riffs and you told me earlier that they're actually backwards.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, so there's the guitar riffs going forwards and over the top of that is a guitar solo going backwards. And because I was harking back to, it's not even harking back specifically to the 60s and 70s sort of summer of love stuff. It's almost like this nostalgia that people had for those times, which is very 2020 hindsight, rose tinted kind of thing. And yeah, because that was an indulgent time, I managed to shoehorn in not just one, not just two, but three backwards guitar solos (laughs) into this track. So there's one in the first riffy section. Then when the piece drops down and picks back up again, there's two laid on top of each other as well, because I figured that was in keeping with the excess of that style of music, the sort of indulgent guitar soloing, guitar noodling. And then in the middle, we drop down and you kind of hear the main theme of the podcast played on guitar and a Rhodes piano which is period-appropriate electric piano. And under that, you have this bass continuing at the start of every bar, you're doing this ding-ding-ding-ding kind of thing. And then I've just adjusted those notes enough that I think it kind of gives the main theme a bit of a chord progression, which it doesn't really have in the, in the traditional sense when you hear the main theme of the podcast played normally. So just, yeah, it just gives it a slightly different flavour. And then, yeah, we have a whole lot of tape delay and and crashing feedback and things towards the end of the track. And sprinkled throughout it, I also, when I recorded the guitar, those backwards guitar solos with all these effects on my guitar, my lead was loose in the guitar. And just at the start and end of the track, I just heard this sort of static kind of sound coming from the guitar, which I promptly just sampled and peppered throughout the track because I really like this slightly glitchy sound. And to me, that evokes that all is not right in this psychedelic little oasis that's been created by the music. There's a sort of something glitching out a little bit about the, the content, which I feel like is in keeping with the, the reality of that group.
0: Well, now you have all of that incredible insight. Uh, you'll know what to listen out for in the track and we'll play it for you now. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sex. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. Thanks for joining me, and hope to catch you again next episode.